Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. Esther 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in every province wherever the king's command and his decree reached there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of, note the next two words, her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. The grass withers and the flowers do fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. To which you say together, hallelujah and thanks be to God. A defining moment has been 
described or defined in this way. A point in your life when you're brought to make a pivotal decision or when you encounter something, or I would add someone, that or who fundamentally changes you. Defining moment, point in your life when you're brought to make a pivotal decision or when you when you encounter someone or something that fundamentally changes you. It's not a stretch to say that, that when you came to Christ, that is what happened, either from the portal of your own sense of sin or your own sense of need or your own sense of dependence or your own sense of lostness or just being captivated by the character of Christ. You came to a point in your life when you were brought to make a pivotal decision to do nothing with that or to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior or when you encountered that Lord Jesus Christ, it fundamentally changed you. That's a a defining moment in life. And today I want you to think with me, Esther was a a covenant child, right? Uh, Esther had been brought up. Of course, Mordecai had raised her. And as you'll find out, Mordecai... He has pretty good understanding of at least some of the ways of, of Israel. And uh, so he had brought her up as a, as a covenant child, even as you brought up your own children in that way. One are, wouldn't have been true of Esther, but as it is in the New Covenant, children are baptized. They're marked out as being part of the Lord's people, which is what baptism includes um, you catechize your children. You, you taught them doctrine. You taught them how to think according to the Word of God with questions and answers. You take them to Sunday school where that's reinforced by teachers and in worship when that's reinforced. And uh, they are disciplined. They're formed into disciples by way of correction and by teaching all the stuff that goes into parenting. And then, and then your children go out into the world. Uh, they have to. Can't keep them. They go out in the world, and in all too many cases, uh, they become very, very much like the world that they are in. And, and whether, whether young covenant young people want to admit it or not, it gives them an identity crisis because they really cannot escape what they have been brought up with, and yet it is 180 degrees opposite the world in which they are. And there's that identity crisis that comes. They're, they're living in two worlds. Now remember, that's true of Esther. It's rare that you have two names given to a person. Uh, but, but Esther's Jewish name was Hadassah. And Hadassah meant it was actually a term for a large tree that was very, very strong and, and had a beautiful aroma to its leaves. And it was luxurious. And that's the idea, strong and luxurious and rich and captivating, which really Esther was, Hadassah, her Jewish name. But then she was called Esther in the Persians. She was named after Astarte, one of the Persian gods or goddesses. And, and so there, that represented the two worlds in which Esther lived. She was in Persia. Uh, She would have worn Persian clothing and eaten Persian foods. And she, she lived, apparently, contentedly with the people in that world. And she was caught up in the events 
uh, that swirled around Persia, that time of its defeat by the Greeks, and the beauty contest that Ahasuerus had to come up with another queen. She swept up in all of those things in the same way any other Persian woman was involved in those things. But there is what is called the Hound of Heaven. Uh, the Hound of Heaven, that's based after a famous poem in which God, like a hound, pursues his people. And God is pursuing Esther to the point that she comes to a defining moment in her life. And that's what you pray for with your own children. There's a lot of things you pray for with your children, not least this. So I'm hoping that today there's an overlay. On the one hand, we're going to look at Esther's defining moment. But you cannot but think about yourself. You cannot but think about your children and your children's children as well. Okay? Let's look at, at Esther's defining moment. Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3 is a crisis. Now remember what happened. Mordecai has defied Haman. Haman had inexplicably been appointed its second in command uh, to, to Ahasuerus. Uh, but Haman was an Agagite. He was from the tribe that had opposed Israel almost from the time they, they came out of Egypt. And Agag was a king of the Amalekites. Agag was the king that was supposed to be exterminated by King Saul, and he wasn't. And not coincidentally, there's no, coincid there's no incidence, only coincidences, God, God working together. Guess what? Haman or Mordecai, and Haman is, is of Agag, Mordecai is from the family of Saul. And so the best we can come up with here is that, is that Haman, um, who in a lot of ways would, would uh, compromise his faith, wasn't going to do it here. He was not going to bow down. For him, this would have been like Saul not executing Agag. He was not going to bow down to Haman. And little did he realize that this would create the crisis that you read about in chapter 3, the massive overreaction by Haman, uh, so that letters are sent by courtiers to all the king's provinces by the, by the very, very, uh, very amazing mail system that they had where horses were used to send these things to India and all the way to Ethiopia to all of the places. And what is it? Here's the Holocaust, folks. The instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, it's 11 months after this event because of this poor, the casting of poor of lots, and the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, the Holocaust. And it's interesting to reflect here how major conflagrations can result from seemingly insignificant acts. It is 1773, and the colonists are resentful of British rules regarding tea, uh, in which they paid a phenomenal tax to get tea, and they weren't going to do this. And so in 1773, the Boston Tea Party in which the British tea was thrown into Boston Harbor. And that precipitated what were called the Intolerable Acts, 
England became even more, had more of a vice grip hold in the colonies. They sent troops to Boston. And three years later, the Revolutionary War, by an insignificant act that prompted it, um, in 1913, Archbishop, or 1914, June, June 28, 1914, um, a Serbian assassinates the presumptive heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archbishop Franz Ferdinand. That precipitates a reaction by the Austro-Hungarians against the Serbs, and dominoes began to fall, bringing us into World War I. And I often wonder, not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but it is interesting, on uh, March 23, 2023, an Iranian drone kills an American contractor in Syria, wounds five others, and there's retaliation by the Americans and then retaliation by the Syrians. And you've got to wonder, as you see a new axis of Russia and China and North Korea and Iran and new allies of the United States of America and Israel and Europe, you've got to wonder if something like this or something else that would come would not precipitate World War III. And, and this is basically what happens with what Haman did. I, I don't think he ever intended it to happen, but that is what happened. And that, that brings a time to weep. Mordecai, chapter 4, Mordecai learns all that had been done. And his response is, this is, this is now this is again, Mordecai, there's no mention of God in here, but Mordecai clearly understood something of Israel's history as Joshua and Caleb did these things when the Israelites were hesitant about going into the land as King David regularly would do these things because of disobedience in Israel, Mordecai tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes, and which, is a, which is a sign of repentance, and goes out into the midst of the city, and, and hears his heart. He cries out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. This would be the halls of government. You weren't permitted to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So apparently this was not an uncommon thing. When the Persians were defeated by the Greeks, they put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned like this, but you weren't permitted to go into the, to the king's gate of government with these things. So he stays outside and in every province, we're going from India all the way to Ethiopia, Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth in ashes. Now, I want to suggest to you that religion that was on the back burner for the Israelites, things were pretty peaceful in Persia, and Ahasuerus was basically good to the people that were there. And so when times are good, why do you need to be religious, quote-unquote? But I want to suggest to you that the religion that was on the back burner, uh, that was probably getting pretty cold there because the burner might not have even been on or been very low, all of a sudden that religion comes to the front burner because the Israelites would have been familiar with one of the books of what we call the Minor Prophets. 
And if you look in page 904 in your pew Bibles, or Joel 2, 12 to 14, you'll see what, what I think was in their minds. Joel is one of the minor prophets, not that he's unimportant, but the book is shorter. And he's writing to Israel as it is being prepared for judgment. And so Joel writes in response to that judgment to come, Joel chapter 2 and verses 12 to 14, or page 904 in your pew Bible. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Now note the language, with fasting, with weeping, and mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Notice that, that Mordecai did not just wear the garments of sackcloth and ashes, but he cried out with a loud voice. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth cried. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He may turn it aside. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And that language, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's going to come back in the text. But probably this is what's in view. The Israelites in prosperity, yeah, why do you need God, right? Now it's difficult. Front burner. And this is the text that would have guided them as they, in this way, showed their own sorrow and their own repentance. Um, so that brings us, though, to an interesting... And people say, well, well wait a minute, but does it mention prayer? You know, folks, don't, don't make the Bible an offender because a word is left out. Joel doesn't mention any prayer either. But in a prayer, in, in a fasting, in, in a, where, there's a, where you rend your heart and not your garments, I mean, come on, how can you not pray? So folks, clearly that's in view here. But I just want to take a moment before we get on to the, the, what, what happens here with respect to Esther. I'm struck with the fact that in times of national crisis or disaster, God's people and churches fast. Very unpopular text in the New Testament. This is in the book of James, chapter 4, and verses 8 through 10. You don't have to turn to it, but just maybe listen to get the impact of it. Book of James, chapter 4, and verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the language of Joel, okay, you, you, and other places. The Lord, come near to God, come to God, rend your heart, not your garment, and he may relent concerning the evil. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's not speaking out there, he's speaking to his readers, who aren't, they weren't living out of their faith the way they should. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I wonder what seeker-sensitive churches have ever preached on this text. They probably lose three-quarters of the people who even came. But James, James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, we are to be joyous. There's a time, there's a time to mourn, folks. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
Do I need to convince you that our nation is given up? It doesn't mean that God is done dealing with us. But given up in Romans 1 is exactly what that says. You want to have your idols? I'll give you up to them. You want to have your perverted views of sexuality? I'll give you up to those. You want to have your rebellion against authority? I'll give you up to those. Folks, that's our nation. And I suggest that while, yes, we're certainly joy in the Lord, how about some time for fasting and mourning and weeping and rending your heart instead of your garments? In fact, let me go one step further with it. What's remarkable in this text is that there is a holocaust that is awaiting the whole world. There is going to be a day of the return of Christ when those who are living or have died outside of Christ, they will be holocaust, a burnt offering in hell forever. I suggest that maybe as we sense more of the imminence of the Lord's return, I just ask, shouldn't fasting be far more a part of our personal lives, church lives? You know me, I'm very rarely at a loss for words. In Egypt, a number of years ago with uh, pastors, we would have, I would teach in the morning and then we had a class in the afternoon. We always had a, a very early dinner, which I appreciated. And after the dinner, we would discuss the day. And, and one of the, one, the leader of the group of pastors from Egypt, Ramsey was his name, Ramsey. He's like Ramses. <laughs> and right out of the blue, he said, how often do you fast in your churches in the United States? Uh, <laughs> Pastor Bill didn't have a quick answer. And I said, well, churches declare certain days periodically. Some do, some don't. We had a couple days out of the year for that. And I went, yeah, best I could for an answer. And, and Ramses looked at me with kind of a piercing grimace. And he said, um, he wasn't saying it pridefully, it was a matter of fact. He said, our challenges dealing with Islam in Egypt are so serious we have at least two days of prayer and fasting every month. And you could tell from the tenor of his conversation, it was as if to say, are you really serious about what you're facing in your culture? It's not Islam, but it's secularism. And both destroy. So, just a thought about this. Remember, These pictures of Holocaust, there's one that awaits the whole world and should sober us. Okay, so that's the crisis that's here. And in all all defining moments, there's some kind of crisis that comes. Um, A miscarriage, financial collapse, business collapse, um, personal collapse, I don't know. But, But there's some kind of crisis that comes in defining moments. Now, that... That brings us to unavoidable 
an unavoidable dilemma. It's so obvious. And I want you to be feeling these things in verses 4 through 11. Now, everything that's in the background is coming to the foreground. When crisis comes, this often happens. Remember, there's no atheists in foxholes. You've heard that, right? So now notice the next step in all of this. Remember, God is in back of these things. An unavoidable dilemma. And I want you to feel it, okay? Verse 4, Esther's young women and her eunuchs came. She's in the palace. And when they told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Now, what she was deeply distressed about, she didn't know what this was about. But she was deeply distressed that Mordecai looked like he was having some kind of a nervous breakdown here. I mean, he was a mess. He gave him sackcloth and ashes. He looked like a hobo and, and dirty. And, and that, was, that was her immediate concern. And so she sends garments to clothe Mordecai. Isn't it interesting? Joel says, Ren, your heart, not your concern for your garments, it's your heart. But notice where Esther is. And it's a kind of a picture of her own, of her own dullness spiritually. And she sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now, this indicates to you the isolation that has affected Esther and her coldness toward her upbringing and her religion. She's in a sequestered area of the palace, and she is protected from these things. And so uh, she is not out there. Uh, She is unaware of what is happening, and she's dulled to these things. She, if you have put it this way, she's in a bubble with this. And isn't it interesting that she responds to surface things? This, this is reminiscent of Adam and Eve when they are deeply convicted of their own fallenness. They cut down fig leaves and put the fig leaves on themselves. And it's as if, Mordecai, it's, it's as if Esther is saying, well, let me give you, Mordecai, some new fig leaves to cover yourself so you look a lot better. It would be like a child. They know the mom and dad are having some difficulties. They're grieving. They're going through difficult, whatever it would be. And they send them an Amazon gift card. Here, this will make you feel better. Spend it. Okay. So it's, a, it's this kind of a thing that Esther does. But it really shows the effect of her isolation. And when people are isolated from the life of God's people, this is what happens. They get dull. To put it bluntly, they get dull to the real world. Living in a bubble of wealth, living in a bubble of luxury, living in a bubble of protection from things that are offensive and that are difficult, living in a bubble, and so the response is very surface when it comes to the real world. But God's at work. Hound of heaven is pursuing Esther. Awakening now begins with Esther. Again, feel these things. First, Esther's kind of confused. You know, what is this going on here? So when Mordecai won't take the fig leaves, Esther calls for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs. They were the ones that had responsibility for the king's harem. And he'd been appointed to attend her, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak goes out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And so Mordecai just just opens all up to him. Mordecai tells him all that had happened to him. He knows the exact amount of money 
that, that Haman is going, promises to give to the king if he's allowed to carry out the Holocaust with the Jews. And he also explains that there's going to be the destruction of the Jews. Excuse me, what is Esther? She's a Jew, a Jewess. Then Mordecai, to prove it, gives him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their holocaust, for their destruction. Where does Esther live? Susa. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of, watch, her people. Now this Mordecai, who had had no problem cultivating Esther to go into the harem and eventually the king's bedroom, and who says, don't tell him you're a Jewess. Now it's different. Now religion is on the front burner, and he says, go and tell this king not only what this decree is, but you let him know you're a Jew. These are your people. Wow. That begins the awakening in Esther. And so she, in verse 9, so Hathak goes and tells Esther exactly what Mordecai had said. This is the real world. And brothers and sisters, when the Lord is at work in children, children's children, and others for whom you pray, you're sitting there saying, my my son, my daughter, my grandchildren, they are in a bubble of unreality. And the hound of heaven bursts a bubble. And that can often be very painful as it is for Esther. Again, I want you to feel with Esther's dilemma here. Verse 10, so Esther spoke to Hathak, and commanded him to go to Mordecai. Apparently, Hathak discharged his whole duty, laid everything on the line. And she says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. Now, there's another way she could have gone to the king. If you have one of the favored officials that are very close to Ahasuerus, and they request an appearance by a person with the king, the king would consider it. But guess the one person who could do that? His name is Haman. And Haman is not about after ordering the holocaust of the Jews, to let this Jewess appear before her husband. She's stuck. There's only one way, and that is if the king holds out the golden scepter so that he or the person coming may live. In other words, you get this picture, folks. You, you, the king is there on his throne, and you're standing at the very end looking at him, which means... You, you want to appear before him and speak. This goes to show you how beautiful it is that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, right? That king looks at you. He doesn't take the golden scepter and hold it out. 
the next place for you is the gallows or the axe. So, so this is this is what Esther is facing, and this is indeed a dilemma for her. And she adds in there, but as for me, I've not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. Now, this this is kind of pathetic, folks. Ahasuerus was known as a real womanizer. He must have had a whole lot of testosterone in his system to be one who every night would have intimacy with someone in his harem. And he loved Esther. 30 days? She hasn't gone to bed with him? Hasn't seen him? How do you think you'd respond if you're Esther and you're asked to go before the king and you know if he doesn't hold out the golden scepter, you're dead meat. And after 30 days, ladies, if your husband has not shown you some kind of affection, what do you begin to think? And so this only compounds her fear and the dilemma that she has. Folks, that's real-world dilemmas. It's thought about real-world unavoidable dilemmas, and they're not uncommon. Let me, let me, give, you, let me give you some. A soldier on a field sees a wounded buddy several yards away from him. If he rescues him, he risks being killed by an IED or by a sniper. That's a defining moment. What do you do? A husband and wife are told that the child in the mother's-to-be's womb is severely mentally and physically impaired. But that state allows termination of pregnancies and guarantees the woman's right to choose. However, if she doesn't, the doctor explains it will be a life of daily distress and astronomical medical costs. Defining moment. A student must participate in a class play that she regards as lewd and blasphemous. But if you don't participate in the play, you don't graduate. Defining moment. A Muslim in an Islamic nation hears of Jesus Christ on a radio broadcast. He's captivated. And he cannot escape the truth, especially because in Islam, the cross and the death of Christ on the cross is denied. But here he hears of the cross and knows that only there is forgiveness of sins. If he comes to Christ, he'll be shunned by his family. He will not be able to get employed. And he may even be killed. That's the defining moment. A young woman living with her boyfriend becomes powerfully convinced that she's miserable and she's in a trap. But she's dependent on him and she doesn't want to be alone. Defining moment. A husband comes under an unshakable sense of doom, 
sensed that he, for his own sin, is under the wrath of God, and he needs to be right with God through Christ. Both his wife and their two families hate religion, and he has up till this point fueled that hatred. If he comes to Christ, there will be a total change. There must be in his life. And he thinks, what's ahead? That's a defining moment. Now, God is in the back of these things. But what do you do in a defining moment? Let's get back to the text. I love, didn't always agree with Billy Graham's theology, but I love the title of his magazine, Decision, because that's what we come to here in verses 12 through 17. Esther is now really between a rock and a hard place. Verse 12, so they tell Mordecai what Esther said. Now, this is no personal face-to-face meeting here because Mordecai wouldn't even really be allowed at this point to see her. So, by the messenger, Hathak, Mordecai tells them to reply to Esther. Now, listen to this. Listen to the way this bores in and makes Esther realize she's really between a rock and a hard place. Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace, remember her bubble? You will escape any more than all the other Jews. And he's saying this through the messenger who heretofore did not even know Esther was a Jewess. For if you keep silent at this time, there's all kinds of debates about what he means by this. I'll give you my thoughts on it in a moment. But if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And then he adds, in very similar language to what's used in Joel, and who knows if he will resent or relent. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I want you to feel what would go through Esther as she heard this. Okay, Esther... You'll be in jeopardy if you go to the king, no doubt. But Esther, if you don't, one way or the other, you're dead. Rock in a hard place. If you don't go, God will use another instrument. Because remember that Mordecai was aware of the promises of God, and there's many of them, that God, even in captivity, would not abandon his people. And he believed fasting and breaking of your heart and wearing sackcloth. Who knows? God may relent. And here he's very optimistic here. If you don't go, God will use another instrument. And this is what's very, very confusing. Some even believe, I don't agree with the view, but that Mordecai himself would would kill Esther if she didn't go. But whatever he meant by it, he says, if you don't do this, one way or the other, you and your father's house will perish, even if God delivers the Jews. 
God will judge you and you will be dead. And then he says, Esther, remember your position. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And again, it's something like Joel. Who knows whether God will relent. Now, until this point, Esther has been, I don't like the phrase, a victim of circumstances. We're never really <laughs> victims of circumstances. But if you want to use it, victim of circumstances, or she was under her circumstances. She was swept up in her circumstances, as our young people are, folks, in our Persian culture. In other words, she had been conformed to this age. But God is at work in this defining moment. The hound of heaven is pursuing her as she realizes she's between a rock and a hard place. And watch how she now is being transformed by the renewing of her mind. She hears this, and now it's not, it's not Haman casting poor, casting a die for what they do to the Jews. It's Esther's die is cast. She tells them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. Interesting in Joel, when there's a time of fasting by some, all are called, sound the trumpet, call the congregation, gather the elders, gather the women, gather the children, and let them join in the fast. And Esther now has this part of her background, not on back burner, but on front burner, and in almost identical language, she says, call. Here's the trumpet is Esther. Call everyone to not eat or drink for three days or three nights. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now keep in mind what this does. You know, I don't know. I know what an intermittent fast is. I know what a daily fast is. You go three days on a fast, and you're kind of cranky. <laughs> And you are hungry, and you look pretty emaciated, even after three days. And remember, she's going to go up here before the king. did not make any difference. She, she's going to fast too, because front burner is the way you deal with God. And I and my young women will also fast as you do then. Here's the decision. I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Two things. Esther identifies with God's people. When our children, grandchildren are wayward, they don't want to be part of the church. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to be identified with Christians. This is in the forefront for Esther. It's kind of like Ruth. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. But she puts people first. She, identif she identifies with her people as we pray that, that the Lord's the children will do. Yes. And it's not two worlds anymore for Esther. Even, even the people that are there to serve her, they're going to fast on her behalf. And this is very significant about Esther. We'll get to that in a moment. I and my young women will fast as they do. Then I will go to the king though it's against the law. This is, this is repentance, folks. 
In order for Esther to be accepted by Ahasuerus, you literally did whatever he wanted. Now, she is going to go to the king even though, hello, it is against the law. Why was Vashti executed? When you king called you to come and you didn't, that also is against the law. This would be coming and not being called is against the law. She's not living as a pagan anymore. I hope that's what you pray for, for your children and your children's children. She's getting out of the bubble, folks. She's dealing with the very real world. And just, it's not really as an aside. Don't you see that this is Esther's Gethsemane? So much like Christ. A very similar situation. You and I, folks, are going to be destroyed if there's not a mediator. Okay, make that point clearly. If you don't have a mediator, then it's you and God and you and your sin, and the wages of sin is death, eternal death. You've got to have a mediator. And here, Esther is to be the mediator, going to Ahasuerus. But with Christ, the whole situation is far, far worse. The anger of the king that she would dare to approach me and you might die. Jesus is facing the anger of his father against all of the sins of all of the people represented. And it was as if that anger really was poured out on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And there's no, if I perish, I perish. Jesus is going to perish. That's why he says, if you are willing, so like Esther, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But, oh, he's going to perish. And he perishes the agonizing death of bearing the Holocaust for all of his people. He is the burnt offering, the Holocaust, for all of those that were given to him. And even as, if Esther succeeds, salvation for the Jews is accomplished, so Jesus did succeed. And his salvation was accomplished. It's interesting it began with himself. Jesus didn't need to be saved from his sin. But he became sin for us. And if God didn't raise him from the dead, that would be a statement that something big went wrong. But he was raised. And there's the first fruits, right, of those who sleep in him, even as Esther would save herself and save her people. But we're getting ahead of the story. But you see beautifully how the shadows of the Old Testament come here. But I want you to see the evidence of change in Esther. Okay, Remember, Esther had been under the circumstances. She had been a victim of circumstances. She had been controlled by circumstances. Not in verse 17. Mordecai, she says to the agents, go tell Mordecai to gather all the Jews and fast, and will fast as well. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai 
who's used to commanding Esther. Mordecai goes away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In defining moments, mark this down. You go from being controlled by your circumstances. Not to controlling your circumstances. We don't do that. You go from being controlled by your circumstances to being active as you deal with them. Huge part of a defining moment. It's not just a head trip. You make changes in your conduct as well as Esther did. And you come in verse 1. You've got to picture this, folks. Three days later, Esther's hungry. And probably didn't look her best, even with all the makeup. I guess you could mask it at that point. But she's afraid. And the king's over here. She's here. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters where he sat while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And if that scepter doesn't go down, she's done. We'll find out what happens when we come to the next message on Esther. And it's not over at that point. It's fascinating. Not what you expect. I want to deal with all of you and myself as well. The decisions that you and I make irrevocably define our futures. I know God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. Two circles, folks. God's absolute sovereignty and man's absolute responsibility. And that's what we're dealing with right now. The decisions that you make irrevocably define your future and... They irrevocably affect the destinies of many, many, many other people. That's that's part of the curse of a hyper-American individualism. I make my choice and it won't hurt other people. Excuse me. I will make my choice to kill myself. You don't know how many people you hurt with that. Don't buy that lie, folks. The decisions you make irrevocably define your future, and they affect the destinies of all those around you. And your choice, humanly speaking, your choice defines who and what you are. And you're one of two things. You will either go through your life as a victim of the circumstances that control you or you will be active in dealing with those circumstances responsibly that will define who or what you are your decision will define what people you identify with and no it's not doesn't make any difference I believe in Jesus as my own personal savior Jesus would say to you excuse me I have a bride And that bride is called the church. And if you love me, you're going to love my people. And everybody, folks, everybody has to be identified with somebody. You all are. 
Your primary identification is either, either with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through Christ, or your identity is with Persia. Your identity is with the world. Ruth, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And your choice defines the world that you will live in forever. Your choice links to Christ and his resurrection and everlasting life. Yeah, the Bible says you never die. It doesn't make any difference what your community outside of Christ is. Outside of Christ, it's the same destination for everyone. And you don't want to go there. But your choice, your choice of the world that you'll be part of will determine your destiny. Part of a saved world or a holocaust. And the decision to identify with Christ and his people does so many things. So many things. Number one, it energizes you. Now, it's the grace of God that makes you identify with Christ. It's that new life that makes you identify with Christ. But even in the nature of the case, it's a new life. And it energizes you because it's the life of heaven itself, just the opposite of the world, where in the world everything begins to get old and worn out and not very pleasant anymore, kind of like Esther had become to Ahasuerus. With a Christian life, every single day, there's something new and something exciting. It's like spring every day for the believer. You know, identify with Christ and his people, and it gives a purpose, a purpose, this is so important, beyond yourself and your problems. Dear God, what bubbles people are in? The YouTube bubble, the Facebook bubble, the TikTok bubble. It doesn't make a difference what it is. It's a bubble. And your decision will either keep you in that bubble of an unreal world or it will pop that bubble and bring you into the real, real world. And that real world gives you hope beyond death. However, that death comes. Isn't that great? Yes. Real outside of Christ, you face death, then put hell after it. That's what it is. You face death as a Christian. Jesus says you never really die. There's everlasting life. And beyond that, that personal transformation makes you an instrument of transformation of the world. You stay in a bubble, you can't do that. You stay in a bubble, and you'll blow bubbles for other people. Let God burst that bubble, and you become an instrument to burst the bubble of other people and get them to live. And I say it again, folks, it's the real world. Okay? Defining moments. That's the whole of your life. <laughs> Not just once, but the defining moment in particular when you get out of the bubble and come to Christ, that's where it's got to start. Karen Jobes, in her wonderful commentary on the book of Esther, I'm very indebted to her ministering to me during the week, but uh, she concludes, so I can't say it better than Karen Jobes, but she concludes her study in chapter 4 and writes, perhaps 
Like Esther, you've been brought to this moment in your life by circumstances over which you had no control, combined with flawed decisions you made along the way. Perhaps instead of living for God, you have so concealed your Christian faith that no one would even identify you as a Christian. Then suddenly you find yourself facing calamity, either in the circumstances of your life with others or just within your own inner emotional world. Regardless of the straits you find yourself in, turn to the Lord. Rend your heart, not your garment, fast and weep and mourn, and return to the Lord your God. His purposes are greater than yours. And who knows? Perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are learning so much from this book that is very much toward the end of the Old Testament when you tie up the themes that you have been that you've been weaving throughout the whole Old Testament. And we thank you, our Lord. Well, we don't preach Esther, we preach Christ, because Lord Jesus, you are the one who transformed her. We can get behind the scenes and see what goes into defining moments, the crises, the, uh, the dilemmas that you can't change. You're, you're in them. You're between rocks and hard places and the decisions that must be made. Our Lord, certainly we pray for ourselves uh, that in the defining moments of our lives we would always decide for Christ. But we remind you, our God, of our prayers for our children, for our children's children, and for many others that we pray for who are outside of Christ. And we would be so bold as to pray in this day that you would bring the crises, the sense of, not just the sense of, the truth of dilemmas that cannot be resolved by human reason, and bring the decision to get out of the bubble of unreality and to deal with the real world of God who made it and who governs it, who will judge it in Christ. So our Lord, use this message about Esther to make Esthers of all of us, people who have failed, people who have been too much conformed to this age, but people who realize in defining moments we must identify yourself with your people and turn from what has blown up the bubble to follow you in the real world in which you govern as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.